Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Sunday Take. It is March 5th, 2023. I'm Blois Olson, your host. This week, we're going to go deeper into Minnesota's future energy policy, the politics, uh, and the dynamics. And then we're going to end with a take on the flow of capital at the Capitol. We're going to dive right into our first interview, uh, and I'm with Derek Moe, and Derek is uh, the president and CEO of Minnesota Rural Electric Association, and they're a trade association that is made up of what they say, rural electric providers and energy providers, and they had their annual meeting last week. I moderated a panel of legislators, and I'm happy to have Derek with me today. Derek, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Blaise. Appreciate it. Um, you know, I when I think of your members, rural electric co-ops and providers, I think of folks who are really on the ground, um, citizen elected boards, volunteers, trying to make sure that the cooperative way, the cooperative model also is uh, a good way to provide a utility or a service back out to your members. Talk a little bit about what defines the members of MERA. Yeah, I'm so glad that's what you think about because those are uh, those are pretty good things that are at the core of of who we are. So we have 50 rural electric co-ops in Minnesota, and they are community-based organizations that deliver electricity uh, to members of the co-op that also governed by members of that co-op. So uh, they're geographically dispersed around the state. Uh, 85% of the land mass in the state is served by rural electric co-ops and about a third of the population. So anywhere in the state that's not in a city is generally tends to be a rural electric co-op service territory. And in that territory, they elect people that buy the electricity to serve on their boards, and then they go hire management that resides in the local community. It's a nonprofit model, so all the dollars that a co-op collects goes to the purpose of serving those folks in the co-op with electricity. And over time, if they collect more than they need, they give those dollars back to those member owners over time. So that's a little bit about our governance model and, and who we are. And uh, MREA is uh, pleased to represent all 50 of the state's co-ops. When you um, describe it as a one-third of Minnesotans are served by a rural electric co-op, that puts it in light of just the significance of these co-ops because 
you know, people think of their power, whoever they get their bill from, right? Or whoever they call to turn it on when they move. And then it's all about, quote, keeping the lights on. Uh, but you have 50 members who keep the lights on locally. As the as you had your annual meeting a week ago or so, uh, I know the governor was there, I was there. There's just been so much chatter about energy policy in the state. Can you talk about the way in which your members look at the future of energy in the state and some of the mandates that are, that passed and the governor signed earlier this year? Absolutely. This is a huge year at the legislature for energy policy. It's actually been a huge few years nationally for energy policy. So there's a lot going on that our members are uh, leaders in actually performing and moving forward with the energy transition that's being pushed both by economic forces as well as policy forces. The biggest thing, of course, being the 2040 bill that requires that all electricity for anybody that gets electricity in Minnesota, all of it comes from carbon-free resources by 2040. That's probably the biggest energy policy in the state's history. Uh, was passed already this session. Uh, in January, as soon as the legislature came into session, it was one of their major priorities, and it ended up getting signed by the governor uh, about a month later. So big piece of energy legislation that uh, we talked about at our annual meeting that we're working on with our members and, and is impacting the industry in a lot of ways. The governor showed his thanks, uh, appreciation for the co-ops, for trying to balance all these things and keep reliability and affordability as high priorities while we navigate this energy transition. And certainly those are basically our concerns, that that while we try to make all these changes as quickly as they're coming, that we're able to do that in a way where our communities can still get electricity in an affordable way and have the lights on and turn on every time they they need to do that. So reliability and affordability need to be kept in balance. That That's a big challenge that we're uh, navigating uh, with our membership as as this policy push is going on. One of the issues I know that gets talked about a lot is electrification of vehicles uh, and charging stations. And I know there's a lot of federal money, and I know uh, just this past week, uh, Representative Larry Kraft uh, dropped a bill about building out that infrastructure in the state. Electric vehicles are not as prominent in greater Minnesota. They are, prom- they are there, and people have them. But when you think about powering farms, powering manufacturing or uh, uh, businesses, those kinds of issues, is there is it a different kind of power or a different kind of needs for your members than maybe a more dense, uh, densely populated area like Twin Cities? I don't know if I'd say it's different, Blois, as much as I would say it's another reason why we have to make sure that we could keep an adequate supply of electricity and make sure it's reliable and affordable. The way that society is headed, the economy is headed, there's going to be more things that are electrified over the next few decades, and that is going to require that electricity remain the stable resource that it has been in the past. That's just part of what we see as being in, in really an inevitable transition that's that's already underway. So we're going to need to deal with those challenges in rural areas uh, just like they need to deal with them in the cities. Now, the details, of course, of how the 
exact build out of the distribution system and where the transformers sit and all of these kinds of things are obviously going to be somewhat different in rural areas. But from a big picture scale, you need to have power available. You need not only to have the power available that we need today, but to be able to meet these increasing electricity demands. And so again, that's one of the things that uh, we're concerned about and trying to keep our eye on as, as these new uh, mandates and new policies come down the, come down the road at us. Derek Mose, my guest uh, in this first segment of Sunday Take. What do you want consumers to hear about your members' commitment to this new way of thinking about energy these next few decades? Well, I, I want them to know that rural electric co-ops, on the one hand, have been leaders in the energy transition to date. We're decarbonizing as rapidly as, as anybody in the state, as rapidly as anybody in the country. We're very innovative as co-ops. We can tackle new things. And we had EV charging rates, for example. We were some of the first in the state with EV charging rates uh, ahead of the IOUs to do that. We're more flexible because we are locally controlled by our directors that are locally elected and govern our co-ops. And so as soon as we find a way to do things that are good for our community, uh, we have fewer uh, hurdles and roadblocks sometimes to be able to move forward with those innovative approaches. But at the same time that we're engaged in that energy transition, uh, our model is serving local communities. And fundamentally, we don't want to spend more money on more generation resources that aren't really needed but are only put in the ground in order to make some policy mandates because that impacts the reliability of people or the affordability of people's electricity bills. And we definitely, again, want to do this in a way where there's enough generation available from whatever sources and reliable sources that need to be to make sure that people can not only plug in their EVs, but keep their lights uh, available, their heat on anytime they need to. So I guess in a, in a nutshell, uh, our local boards trying to watch out for their local communities and keep those things all in balance is what I think co-ops are working hard on and what I'd, I'd like to have uh you know, as the primary message. One of the things the legislative panel talked about, Blois, that uh, you did a great job facilitating. The members really enjoyed that, so we appreciated having you there. They talked about with the new 2040 bill, and we're going to have all carbon-free energy, does that mean we can slow down some of the other mandates? And there was a good discussion on that, and uh, we hope that uh, that some of that, dis- you know, resonates through to the legislature uh, and, and has some impact as well. Derek, thanks for joining me on Sunday Take, and uh, we'll continue to follow these issues with you and others uh, over the months and years ahead. Thank you. Appreciate it, boys. Take care. When we come back, carbon sequestration and a carbon pipeline. Is it possible, and what's the timeline? I'm Blois Olson. You're listening to Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 
Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Our first interview this week is with Lee Blank. He's CEO of Summit Carbon Solutions, and Summit Carbon Solutions is proposing uh, a pipeline, not uh, for liquefied gas, but for carbon. And it's a an idea that's out there. It's been talked about a lot throughout the state. It would be a major construction project, uh, and Lee joins us now. Lee, thanks for joining me on Sunday Tech. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Let's just start with what is a carbon pipeline? Yeah, so carbon uh, pipelines are basically infrastructure projects that transfer, um, you know, the commodity from one, one, one point of emission to a point of injection. And I think some of the discussion uh, around the project itself is why do you why do you have to transport? Uh, what does why does the infrastructure need to be in place? Well, ultimately, where the emission points are for carbon, many times they can't be sequestered there because the geological structure doesn't work. Which is why, again, there's a there's a there's an infrastructure component to really the the three part project that we have. The infrastructure component, just being one of them, is to move that carbon from uh, 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 the, where the re- the release is to a point where we can actually sequester that carbon permanently uh, where it doesn't come back into the atmosphere. So uh, that's really what the project is. And and again, the the pipeline itself, the infrastructure itself, frankly, is just one piece of of really a a three-part project. When we talk about carbon, we hear about it a lot when it comes to energy. And, you know, we're talking a lot about energy uh, in the future uh, on this Sunday take this week. where where does this fit in kind of the next energy generation, the idea of lowering carbon? How does this help the environment? What what are the environmental considerations? Yeah, so I think it I think the, the, the carbon economy that I like to call it is 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 here. Um and again, as we move into that that next kind of generation of of uh carbon consciousness and what we need to do about it. Um, it really drives kind of the philosophical um, uh, need for this these types of projects. In, in my perspective and in, in the way I view it is there is no, uh, there's conceptually no way that we will not be dealing with some sort of carbon reduction around all industry as we move into kind of this next generation of, of, of um, you know, kind of powering the globe. So as we continue to grow uh, globally, um, 
if, if we're not willing to address the emissions and the carbon emissions that will come from that demand for uh, global energy, um, then again, we'll, we'll be dealing with this problem. And I think really the globe has now said the new carbon economy is real. Um, there, you know, carbon trading is now becoming relevant. Um, and it's all because of the fact that we're having to deal with um, uh, what, what, what is a global issue now on carbon. No, I, I think about it in those terms of we talk a lot about the future. So I appreciate the way you're explaining kind of how it can work because I, I like to say there's a lot of talk about the future, but people just need to imagine how it works. One of the kind of key components here is just um, the rural kind of diversification of rural economies uh, with this project. Can you talk about you know, where this pipeline would run and what it would mean to those communities? Yeah, certainly. So, it, it, again, we, we would run through several counties in the southern part of the state as well as several counties kind of in the northern, northwest side of the state. And that's all based really uh, on, on where our agricultural ethanol plants, the, 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 um, the biorefineries are that we're partnering with and we partnered with. Um, what it means for the communities physically is, is uh, um, really an economic influx, whether it be the tax incomes that, that would come through the operation of this uh, ongoing asset, which can be, you know, in the range of a million dollars a year to these various counties, uh, depending, uh, again, county by county a bit. Um, but, but the other thing, too, I think that, that uh, we, we forget about a lot is the fact that as we as we build this pipeline, I mean, it, it, we estimate it'll take 11,000 individuals to actually build this 2,000 miles of infrastructure. Um, the local economies from that and these various small communities would absolutely have a positive uh, benefit from um, a local hardware store or maybe a local drug store that would actually uh, see the benefits of over the several years that this project would be under construction. You know, again, what those what those actual dollar amounts would look like, uh, I, I don't necessarily know, but ultimately I know it's real, uh, just based on the sheer demand for what uh, this labor force will will uh, will need. My guest is Lee Blank. He's CEO of uh, Summit Carbon Solutions. They are proposing a carbon pipeline throughout the Upper Midwest, including through parts of Minnesota. Lee, uh, one of the pieces here is you talked about geology. I don't want to go deep into geology class here on a Sunday morning, but when you think about what are the risks, how do you test to make sure this is safe, and 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 what do you make sure that people need to know about the way carbon moves versus other things that you know other materials that move through um, pipelines? Yeah, so um, again, the, the part of the reason that North Dakota works is really only several areas in the U.S. that work for sequestration, and it's because of this the cap rock and again i'm not a geologist we certainly have great ones inside our company but the 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 cap rock is a thick layer of rock that will sequester the carbon forever and again that is uh that's not us saying that that's the epa that states that as well as the state of north dakota so we feel very comfortable about um once it's sequestered that it will stay there the movement of the carbon itself we it's compressed at the at the point of of release it's put into a supercritical state, which is really, really a, a, a liquid, and then pressurized and pushed through the actual uh, infrastructure to the sequester point, where it also remains under pressure and driven down uh, approximately a mile and a half under the cap rock uh, in these uh, in these storage zones. 
Are there carbon pipelines that exist now? Where are they and how long have they been operating? Yeah, certainly. There's There's been carbon pipelines in the U.S. for uh, over 30 years. There's approximately 5,000 miles of carbon pipelines in the U.S. today. Some would be in the Mid-South. Um, and that's a, the, the one example that I can think of uh, uh, quickly. But, yeah, there's they've been in existence for quite some time. And the capture, uh, the capture of carbon at these biorefineries, that's been done for many years as well. Those have been that have been capturing the carbon at an ethanol uh, plant um, traditionally sit on geology where they can actually sequester it right there. So we haven't had the actual infrastructure project to go with it. But all these plants in in, in eastern Nebraska, north central Iowa, southern Minnesota, and South Dakota, they do not have the geological uh, infrastructure to sequester right there at the plant. So said again, hence the uh, the infrastructure project to sequester in North Dakota. Got it. What's the timeline? What's your hope for timeline? And what's the process to get this project completed? Yeah, the, 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 the process itself will take, once we put shovels in the ground, it should take approximately a year. Again, it's, it's, a, it's a big project and, and that um, timeline surprises some people. But frankly, we're going to have 11,000 uh, contractors and, and employees working in various areas to put this project in place. So we see it as about a year construction. Uh, we would hope to see construction start in the fourth quarter of this year. Um, certainly the permitting processes in the three main mainline states, South Dakota, North Dakota, and Iowa will, uh, will dictate a bit of that. And, uh, those permit hearings and things are being set as we speak. So, uh, that timing could move slightly, but that's, that's our, our, our goal as of, of today. And then when would it be fully operational? We should see fully operation the first quarter of 2025. Okay. Lee Blank, thanks for joining me on Sunday Take. Thank you. When we come back, we're going to talk to Minnesota Power and the Minnesota 2040 bill. What does it mean to northern Minnesota? What does it mean to the statewide economy and how are utilities going to deal with it? I'm Blois Olson. You're listening to Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. Now with the MLB app, you can get baseball your way. Pick your favorite team, your favorite players, and get customized highlights, stories, and breaking news right on your home feed. Follow the action with Game Tip, where 3D replays add another dimension. Plus, notifications can keep you connected to every pitch, every hit, every game. The MLB app. Baseball, your way. Download it now for free from the App Store or Google Play. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. In this next segment on Sunday Take, I am joined by Julie Pierce. She is the Vice President of Strategy and Planning for Minnesota Power. And as we continue to talk about energy policy and politics this week, uh, I thought Minnesota Power would be a good example of, uh, you know, a, a utility that has really had to balance both industrial and consumers and 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 the northern part of the state and economic development, and I'm glad Julie could join me. Julie, thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. One of the things that I've asked this week of guests is um, how to kind of narrow down and put some specifics or some examples around the future of energy in Minnesota. I know that Minnesota Power just went through its 15-year plan with the PUC last fall, uh, got approved. So how do you see the next 15 years changing from a, from a perspective of what's your strategy? What's the Minnesota power plan when it comes to making sure that you can meet regulatory goals, keep costs down, et cetera? 
Yeah, thank you. It is such an exciting time in the energy industry right now. And our journey in Minnesota has really been going on for over a decade, right? So our policy in this state has been progressive. We have been leaders overall in both planning the electric grid and the system, as well as the implementation of policy along the way. Minnesota Power itself has been at the forefront and a leader in all of that uh, since we began our decarbonization journey uh, over a decade ago. We set a goal for our, ourselves to start this journey early. I, I liken it sometimes that you need a long runway to make these big systematic changes on our electric grid, and Minnesota Power recognized that early and started moving um, moving its system so that we could be ready for uh, the transformation ahead. The first thing that we did was address our power supply. We needed to decarbonize. We were 95% coal-fired energy in 2005, and we recognized that that wasn't going to be the fuel of choice going forward. And so we started making very thoughtful, careful, planful uh, decisions in and around our coal-fired assets and started retiring refueling, remissioning um, a number of our smaller coal-fired units. On, as we did that here in the northern Minnesota region, we then added a tremendous amount of new infrastructure with renewable energy with wind. We purchased a brand new HVDC uh, line, 465-mile line, to connect a heavy uh, wind resource in North Dakota. We built additional infrastructure to Manitoba to connect to massive hydroelectric energy to bring our power supply to 50% renewable today. As we did that, uh, we recognized that the system and the grid needs to be augmented. So additional transmission infrastructure uh, in and around the region has also been announced so that we can adjust and adapt to the new patterns of energy flow. So it's been really exciting to the point where we are at today, and that's our energy forward strategy. We, uh, we coined that because we knew that we had a lot to do and we wanted to move forward with our, with our plan in a systematic, thoughtful way. When we do planning, we really start with a principle-based approach. We start with reliability. We have the distinct responsibility to keep the lights on and then affordability and we've been working and to decarbonize as well. So that's a little bit about where we've been. I think, do you want me to go into uh, where we're going next? Well, I mean, I think as, as, you, as we talk about that, I know that just this past week, there was some examples presented at the Minnesota legislature on where we're going or where you're going. Um, maybe talk about those, because one of the things that uh, I think technology ideas and concepts doesn't always meet the today in reality. But let's talk about energy storage as, as one of those examples. I know you have one project on energy storage that is probably critical when you're thinking about wind and other forms of energy that you want that are not carbon-based that, that you're going to have to deliver. Yeah, so our recent uh, integrated resource plan did identify that we would be moving forward with a, a first Step into storage technology, and that identified about 500 megawatt hours, which is a, a, a fairly small chunk of storage in the grand scheme of our 10 million megawatt hour system, but a really, really important step because we know that storage is going to be needed in the long term. 
So our, our focus right now is to get started with some pilot programs and look at storage largely in the long duration space. And so we see with our high load factor customers up here in energy intensive users of energy in our industries in northern Minnesota that we need to cover large spans of time 24-7 when they're going to need reliable power. And we feel storage can play a really good um, component with that. And then you match that with the 700 megawatts of wind and solar we're going to also be adding on the system in our next resource additions. And that really starts to tee up a good, reliable portfolio for advancing to our, our target is 80% renewable energy by 2035 and ceasing coal operations completely. One of the things that I know is critical in northern Minnesota, especially amongst heavy industry, is transmission, consistent transmission, and and I'll just say powerful transmission because this is not lightweight power, as I would uh, tend to say. Talk about the upgrade of kind of the transmission that's needed, and is there any change in the type of transmission once you start to change to different kinds of power? Yes, absolutely. So as we are looking at changing the sources of energy that are on the system, the grid and the network that moves the power around uh, to our load and in, in the region needs to needs to adapt. And what we've identified here most, uh, you know, recently is that our local additions need to be augmented with regional additions. And so we have announced um, a, a few very exciting projects uh, to enhance that grid improvement and how we move the power. Uh, we identified a, a key 345 uh, KV line that we're going to be in partnership with uh, Great River Energy Cooperative. And we are also working with an existing asset, our, our high voltage DC line, which is a different technology uh, that is utilized to move power long distances very efficiently. We're going to be upgrading and modernizing that as well to be ready for the new patterns of energy flow as we get more intermittent resources on the system. And these investments are definitely needed, <laughs> and uh, it, it, they're needed for everyone uh, to make sure that we have a reliable system. You know, not just industry, all customers need a reliable grid for sure. No, I was going to go there next. My guest is Julie Pierce. She's the Vice President of Strategy and Planning uh, for Minnesota Power. Balancing consumers with industry uh, is obviously a challenge. One of the kind of rhetorical questions that has been talked about a lot is cost. As you start to forecast cost uh, investment, um, is there is there a concern or do you feel pretty confident that uh, energy costs will stay affordable in, in your service area? Yeah, great question. As, as we're being asked to do uh, basically what I call a remodel of a house, <laughs> right, <laughs> um, in the electric, yep. right? We have, we have, we have a, a great house, but we need to remodel. Uh, that is going to take a lot of investment, as I just mentioned, and, and multiple types of investment in the wires, in the systems, in the energy production, in the technology that we use to interface with our customers. And so as we do that remodel, we know that there's going to be additional investment needed, and that does obviously need to be paid for by the consumers. You know, the rate at which we do this and the pace at which we do this will really drive the answer to your question. 
our goal and what we've been working really carefully with the legislators on this latest bill and in our own um, planning is to make sure that the pace is reasonable, that we can keep the lights on, and that we can get to the end goal in a thoughtful way with our communities, with our customers, and all of our stakeholders we work with. So at the highest level, uh, you know, energy costs will go up. It really will just depend on the pace. Uh, and that's really determined about the, you know, what Minnesota Power does, what the state does from a policy perspective. We're working to have flexibility in how we implement that pace to 100%. And we look forward to uh, coming up with really creative solutions for our customers. Julie, I know you testified at the legislature. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, people pay attention to campaigns, and they, but they pay less attention to the legislature. Uh, and there's so many new members of the legislature in, in your discussions, conversations. Is it your sense that they have a grasp of what it's going to take? Or um, is that part of the education process that you have to do? Well, I think we all are feeling that the conversation in Minnesota has really advanced. You know, since 2007, when we first set the renewable energy standard for the state, we have done a tremendous amount um, with our stakeholders, with our agencies, and ultimately the legislators that are coming in to recognize the importance of energy transformation. I think there is a recognition that affordability and reliability are number one priorities, no matter who I talk to. I've also been very um, pleased that the legislative uh, bodies have been willing to work and talk with stakeholders and utilities and, and those that are responsible for keeping the lights on to ensure that they're taking into consideration things like how fast can we move, what are the uh, individual provisions that are needed, and what's important to customers ultimately. So I've been impressed by the uh, conversation and how it's been advancing. We have a lot more work to do as we start implementing so as we bring forward these new projects and uh, putting them and putting steel in the ground and getting things implemented in our communities, there will have to be additional conversations for sure. Finally, you, you keep saying we got to keep the lights on. And I think that's one of the things I often say is that you really take power and electricity for granted until you don't have it, even if it's for a couple hours in today's economy. What What do you what do you want consumers to hear about uh, how it works and what they should know about the future of uh, electricity and power in Minnesota? Well, great question. I think at the highest level, I think everyone needs to recognize that changing infrastructure and implementing infrastructure is hard. It's not for the faint of heart and it takes a lot of time and collaboration to make sure that it's done well. Uh, you know, a core commitment of ours is to do this right and get it right for each of our customers because we take our responsibility and our privilege to serve our customers really seriously. So I guess just a healthy dose of patience, of appreciation for all of our workers that work 24 by 7, you know, second to second to keep the lights on. I think a lot of people might not understand, you know, all that it takes to do when you uh, flip a light switch and have that energy there for you on demand. I think that would be my, uh, that would be my uh, ask here in the moment. <laughs> Julie Pierce from Minnesota Power, thanks for joining me on the Sunday Take. Thank you. 
When we come back, this week's take, what to watch in the coming week and how capital considerations at the Capitol may not always be top of mind. I'm Blois Olson. You're listening to Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. We're back on Sunday Take. The sustainability of the state of Minnesota economically, with one-third of our economy being tied up in agriculture, is critical. And that sustainability works multiple ways with Minnesota's corn farmers. This is the Sustainability Minute for Minnesota corn farmers. As we look at the next farm bill, we know that soil health is going to be very important, but so are so many other issues, from making sure that taxes aren't out of control to making sure that the farmers can pass their land from generation to generation. After all, 99% of farms in Minnesota are family-owned. That includes Minnesota's farm, farms and corn farmers. As you look ahead to what the future in energy looks like, you can't ignore clean fuels, sustainable clean fuels. With corn, ethanol expansion has been significant. It means cleaner air. It means more fuel efficiency. And ultimately, it means jobs and economic development in greater Minnesota. Those are critical. After all, we all want clean air. We all want clean water. And the people who use the water, breathe the water, live off the land are Minnesota's corn farmers. So as you're thinking about sustainability, you're thinking about the future of energy. Remember, Minnesota corn farmers are right there with you, fighting for sustainability, making sure that they're at the forefront of clean air and clean water with clean fuels. I'm Blaise Olson. That's the Minnesota Corn Sustainable Minute. Look, there's a lot going on at the Capitol. There was even a day last week with seven news conferences. Yes, seven news conferences. But we're not here to kind of take a shot at what's news because there's a lot of Minnesotans who think a lot should get done. I think the takeaway this week is that with the budget surplus that grew, that looked like it shrunk due to inflation, which was the same inflation as the December forecast, we have to think about the way we deploy government capital. How do we deploy that surplus? There's, of course, a populist theme of give it back from Republicans and rebate checks from the governor. And maybe not spending it all from on tax rebates from the more progressive members. But if you start to think about those funds as capital, what's the best way to deploy it? Where do we get the biggest bang for our buck? How do we maximize the investment of those tax dollars? Bonding and infrastructure is certainly one. It's got jobs. It's got ongoing economic impact and revenue, and it's important. But then you start to look at the laundry list of other things that government and legislators and the governor's administration want to, quote, invest in. And it makes me wonder if they do a forecast or a prospectus on what they could get. In many ways, they do. This week, a housing bill said that they could slash homelessness by 2030. Is that true? How could they deploy it that quickly? It's already 2023, and by the time the money gets out, it'll be 2024. And so how do you end child homelessness 
by 2030. And what's the return? Well, the return on child homelessness, if we ended child homelessness in Minnesota, it would be incredible. But is it realistic? How do we make sure that the deployment of government capital is as realistic and transparent as the deployment of private capital? Because after all, that capital is fluid. The money is liquid. We can spend it however we want. And about $12 billion of it is a one-time opportunity to invest. We're going to invest a lot of that money back into people in Minnesota. Where do we get the best bang for our buck? The return on our investment or ROI. Because that's what business is thinking about all the time. And that's what business thinks when they look at the legislative agenda. The difference is Minnesota's budget surplus has to stay in Minnesota. But private capital can go anywhere it wants. And ultimately, what the legislature decides in policy, in spending, in mandates, is ultimately going to decide where private capital goes. And if Minnesota's administrative and regulatory environment isn't favorable, or it costs more, or the opportunity for ROI is riskier or less, that private capital will go elsewhere. It's important for us to continue to attract investment to this state. It's one of the small pieces that the deed budget has in it. But ultimately, DFLers have to understand that private capital is fluid. And if they put too many rules and too many regulations out, private capital will go elsewhere on issues like housing, on issues like employment, and on issues like cannabis law. I'm Blois Olson. That's this week's take on Sundays at 9 on WCCO. It's the Sunday take. Until next week, goodbye. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 